Welcome to another Alive at Springwood podcast, brought to you by Springwood Presbyterian Churches, where we don't believe churches are buildings. Churches are people. Disciples of Jesus bound together in diversity by God's love, while pursuing faithfulness and vulnerability, celebration and lament, reading the Bible and prayer. May you be encouraged and God glorified by this edition. There's a lot in this passage. We could uh, talk about all sorts of things. But it's a, it's, it's a wonderful, wonderful piece of Scripture. And as I've prepared this sermon, I'm realising more and more what Jesus is talking about here. There's really not words to describe what he's saying. And honestly, I feel myself... Uh, really reaching the end of knowing how to talk about this passage. It's so deep and so beyond our understanding in some ways, and yet so fascinating. We've, um, as we've worked through the Gospel of John this year, you might remember that there's been a number of times where Jesus has said to his disciples, my time has not yet come. Not yet. Not yet. Wait a little longer. Well, our passage today, this this beautiful prayer of Jesus begins with these words. Father, the time has come. The time has come. It's now. But time for what? what? What time is it? Well, Jesus' words at the beginning of this prayer tell us exactly that. He says, glorify your son that your son may glorify you. And so the time has come in the book of John, in the story of Jesus, for Jesus to be glorified and for the Father to be glorified through him. And so Jesus' prayer is is a prayer for God's glory. It's a prayer that through the events that are about to take place that we're going to hear about in coming weeks, through events that are anything but glorious to the world's eyes, Shame, humiliation, suffering, and death, that through those things the world would see the wonder of God. But this isn't just a prayer for Jesus and his Father and their relationship with one another. Wrapped up in this glory and this prayer are Jesus' disciples who he's talking to. Jesus' friends and companions who he's been journeying with. The men and women who have stuck by his side. Somehow, they're going to be part of this glorious story that's unfolding. What's about to happen to Jesus and through Jesus is going to affect them. It's going to change them in profound ways. Life for the disciples is never going to be the same again. But this is also a prayer for all believers. Our Lord Jesus in this prayer, the King of the universe, prays for us. He prays for you. I find that incredibly encouraging and comforting. And so the glory of God that we're about to witness over the final chapters of John and into the future wraps us up in this story as well. 
we're part of this continuing story of God's glory. But what does God's glory look like expressed in the lives of God's people? How is God's glory on display in the lives of his disciples then and in the life of his disciples today? In what ways do we point to and participate in the glory of God here in Springwood, in the suburbs we live in? Well, we're going to explore that a bit today as we look at this passage, so let's, let's pray. Lord God, we pray to you now, and we give thanks that our Lord Jesus prays for us. What comfort it is to know that we have one who is championing championing us and longing for us and desiring for us to be one with you. And Lord, we uh, we pray that as we look at your word now, your spirit might uh, be forming us, forging us together as one. Amen. We've got slides on the screen there, Warren. Fantastic. Do you want to just just click on the um, yeah? I should be able to change it now. I think yeah, it'll work now. That's good. Yeah. So over over the course of our human lives, we're going to form many friendships, many relationships, and some of these relationships are going to last for a long time. Some of them will be fairly short. Some of those relationships are born out of necessity and situation, and just being together in workplaces or whatever it might be. And some are born from a deeper connection of shared interests and common purpose. But for most of us, only a handful of our relationships will move into a space of deep and intimate knowing of one another. Where we know one another so well that we're sharing life together where we share purpose and meaning, share hopes and dreams, moving together as one in the same direction. Perhaps you've experienced that or a glimpse of that in a deep, long-lasting friendship that's weathered the ups and downs of life. Or in your married life with a husband or wife, or with parents or siblings or children that you've journeyed with over a long time. These precious relationships are forged over a long period of being with another person, learning about one another's loves and passions, seeing the way one another responds and reacts to various situations, listening to one another and hearing the groans of the heart. As I paint that picture, I wonder what emotions it raises for you. Maybe you have a particular person clearly in mind and celebrate that kind of closeness and are thankful for it. Maybe you lament because you lack that kind of intimacy and long for it. Or you hurt because you once had it, but now it's gone. Maybe the idea of such closeness actually scares us a bit because we feel the weight of our own brokenness and would rather not be known so intimately. 
deep, intimate relationships of oneness are rare in this world. They're treasures that we want to cling to forever. You can form habits to help forge these relationships. You can invest time and energy in one another, but you can't conjure them. You can't force them. They're gifts. And sometimes I wonder in the world we're living in whether this kind of intimacy is becoming rarer as screens dominate our lives. And as our attention divides around a thousand different news bites, are we finding it harder to truly know each other deeply? To attend to rich relationships, to listen to each other and find shared purpose and meaning. In this prayer of Jesus, there's a recurring theme that keeps on appearing. Jesus keeps praying for oneness. What I'm going to invite us to do is to spend some time looking at this passage together. So what I'm going to ask you to do, I'm going to put some verses up on the screen. I'm going to ask you in groups, just with the people around you, just to choose one of the verses that's on the screen and to ask two questions. In that verse... Who is Jesus praying for? And secondly, who is he praying that they will be one with in that verse? So as we move into groups, please be aware that there's some people who might not be able to read the verses that are on the screen as well, so please read them to one another. Make sure to include the people around you. And um, we'll, after a minute or two of discussion, we'll share a few of those thoughts. So here are some verses You could choose these verses, or if you find another one in the passage you'd like to explore, go for it. So turn around to the people around you. I'll give you two minutes or so to chat about that. Sorry. It would have been good to have them on the same screen, wouldn't it? Who is Jesus praying for? And who is he praying they will be one with? All right, I'll... uh, Draw your attention back this way. Sorry if I'm cutting conversation short. Just keen to hear people's thoughts. What, uh, what verse did you choose? And uh, if, some, if groups could just share who Jesus, uh, who Jesus is praying for and who is he praying that they'll be one with. Anyone share? Able to share? Yep. Verse 26, yes. Yeah, so what do you want to, did you have there the verse before it? That's... No, we just read that. So, that I have made, so verse 26 I have made you know the depth and the depth is the world. Because the verse before it says, but like the Father, the world does not know you, I know you, and they know that you have sent me. Yes, the, the world does not know you, and they know that you have sent me. Yes, the, the world does not know you. Yeah, it's tricky. The, the, the tricky thing about this passage is you take an individual verse and there's lots of days and the different days are referring to different group, different people here and Jesus moves through it. Um, moves As he prays, the they changes. <laughs> and, and so, yes, he's referring to the world here but even more specifically, he's talking to, I, I think in verse uh, 20, 
It's to all those throughout time and place who are going to hear the message of Jesus and respond with belief. So it's, uh, it's, it's much more, but it's much more wide-ranging than the rest of the prayer. That's right. Other responses? Did anyone choose a different verse? Or did everyone do verse 26, Lisa? Yes. Yeah, so verse 26 doesn't specifically say, use the word one there in the passage. It's almost talking about a, an outcome of being one with Jesus that we would love as Jesus loves. Yeah, yeah. Other, other thoughts? Yeah, Mignon. Hmm. Yes, right. So verse 11 says, I will remain in the world no longer, um, but they are still in the world and I am coming to you. And a little bit later it says, um, Holy Father, protect them by the power of your name so that they may be one as we are one. So he's praying that God's people would be one with each other in the same way that Jesus and the Father are one with each other. That's... the depth of what Jesus is praying here, that we would be one as God is one in himself. That's incredible. Um, and I think specifically, if, yes, it's all this prayer is for Jesus' disciples throughout time and place, but specifically he is, he's praying for his immediate disciples in verse 11, I suspect, and then later moves into a wider ranging prayer. Look, we'll leave it there, but there's a lot of verses we could explore. But the point I wanted to draw out here is that Jesus prays for his disciples there and then, the ones he's immediately with, that they will be one with himself and the Father, and he prays would be one with each other as they draw closer to God. And this seems to be, in this prayer, a core way in which God's glory is expressed and revealed through his people. So this is a prayer about glory, but it's a prayer in which Jesus is saying, as my people become one with me and with each other, that is how God will be glorified. So that as we as broken and divided people in much of our lives, as we are forged together with God and each other. That's one way, maybe a core way in in which God's brilliance and wonder shines to the world. But this idea of becoming one with Christ is really at the heart of the whole New Testament. It's the framework for so much of Jesus' teaching and And it's central to Paul and John's writing. Paul and John write in very different ways, but this is a theme that's consistent across all of their writing. But it's also a truth that's sometimes neglected in evangelical churches. And I think that's partly because it's a bit hard to pin down. How can two people 
be one. It's, it's a really confusing and maybe makes us a bit uncomfortable. We're not quite sure what to do with it. And yet it, it fits the patterns throughout Scripture. You know, when Adam and Eve are formed, they're called to be one flesh. It, it's language that shouldn't surprise us, that's consistent through Scripture. And becoming one has always been the journey of God's people, becoming one with God. Think of Israel's story. God says to them, you will be my people and I will be your God. In other words, come and walk with me in the same direction. Walk in my ways. And so being one with God, becoming one with God is to walk from the lonely emptiness of our Egypt slavery to encounter the holy majesty of God at Mount Sinai. And yes, that was Israel's experience. But the experience of every one of God's people mirrors the journey of Israel. It's to continue from there, having encountered God, with God in our midst, being formed in mind, heart, body and spirit to breathe and walk with God as we stumble towards the promised land. Isn't that a description in some ways of our journey? is to finally stand in the house of God, our desires and wills, words and actions captivated by love for God. And so this idea of oneness with Christ, it looks a bit, I think, like the words that we heard from Psalm 63 earlier. And that psalm was David's longing, expressed his longing, his experience of oneness with God, but also a longing for oneness with God. Listen to these words again. You, God, are my God. Earnestly I seek you. I thirst for you. My whole being longs for you in a dry and parched land where there's no water. I have seen you in the sanctuary and beheld your power and your glory. Because your love is better than life, my lips will glorify you. I'll praise you as long as I live and in your name I will lift up my hands. I'll be fully satisfied as with the richest of foods. With singing lips my mouth will praise you. On my bed I remember you. I think of you through the watches of the night. Because you are my help, I sing in the shadow of your wings. I cling to you. Your right hand upholds me. Those are beautiful words of longing to be with God, to be one with him. And in our passage today, Jesus even describes eternal life in this kind of way. He says, now this is eternal life, that they, the disciples, we know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Does that fit your general definition of what eternal life is? I think in some ways this is quite an unusual way of talking about eternal life, quite different to what we normally describe. We, we tend to emphasise the time of eternal life, the 
everlasting, ongoing, future nature of eternal life. But Jesus emphasises relationship here. Eternal life is the state of knowing God and Jesus. But this isn't just a head knowledge kind of knowing. He's talking about intimate relationship like we talked about earlier. Something a bit like what we sometimes experience with people in life. And I think the best analogy that we can come up with from in human terms is like people who've been married for years, doing life together, who are so united in thought and heart that they can anticipate the other person's feelings, thoughts, actions and words. But even that example is somewhat less, less than what Jesus is describing here. Because this oneness with God is not just a feeling of closeness that develops from experience, but from the very real union of God gifting us his very spirit. And that's not something we can do as humans for one another. The Holy Spirit is like a bit like this great long love letter of God laying himself open for us. The Holy Spirit is God saying, here is all of who I am, everything you need to know, the whole truth of me. The Holy Spirit is God tattooing himself onto our hearts. Jesus' prayer for his disciples is that they will experience the fullness of life, eternal life, fullness of life that comes from walking closely with God. The fullness of life that comes from knowing his words and ways so intimately that we might be able to intuitively know, well, this is what God wants. This is how God would have me be. This is how the creator has made life to be properly lived. And so to have eternal life is to know God so deeply that we love his ways and align our hearts and minds, hands and feet with his. We can have eternal life now as we come to know our Lord and God. As the disciples walked and and talked and learned from Jesus over three years of doing life with him, campfires and fishing adventures, sharing food and being chased out of towns, they were receiving eternal life. As they got to know God through Jesus, they grew into relationship and intimate knowledge of God. At the core of eternal life is knowing God, knowing Jesus. And it's something that we can have now. But there's something else I love about this, and it's that while we have received eternal life when we come to know Jesus, we also grow into eternal life. Because this eternal fullness of life is only going to become more glorious and spectacular as we get to know our God more intimately. One article I was reading, it was this, this, this guy describes it in, in this kind of way. Which is quite beautiful. He says... 
I'll return once again to the marriage analogy. And I say this part humorously, but also truly, after 45 years of discovery, I still don't fully understand my wife. And he says, and I think that's the point. Somewhere we come to a point where we've reached the circumference of biblical revelation. And I think that what we're called to do is just to look and wonder and awe and praise and realize there's a world beyond what we can presently understand. And we will know more when we see him face to face. Eternal life is a gift we receive, but it's also a continuing journey, one that we're called into each and every day. Come and know me, God calls to us. Walk by my side and learn of me. Learn from me that you might experience eternal, full life now. But as we've been talking about Jesus' prayer for oneness has another dimension too. Jesus says, my prayer is not for them, his his immediate disciples alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. And so while the heart of Jesus' prayer is that we would be drawn into oneness with Jesus and the Father... The extension of this prayer is that all believers of Jesus across time and place will be one with each other. So as we're drawn into the life of God, as we're formed towards his will and desires and purpose, we all come to share the same heart and will and passions. As we become more like God, so we become more united in heart and purpose. A church community then, we don't experience intimacy and oneness and unity by aiming towards those things as primary goals. We don't become unified by striving for unity above all else. We become one as we seek and long for Christ. We can get distracted by all kinds of strategies and plans and frustrations But at the core of this family life is eternal life. To know and love our God with all our heart, soul, mind and strength. And then naturally, by consequence of sharing in the life of God, to love our neighbour as ourself. In this world that's often divided, in a world oneness and unity between people seems to be rare. In a world where even as individual people, I think we often feel divided and unsure of ourselves, the unity between God's people is countercultural and beautifully attractive, I think. It's glorious. Jesus says in verse 23 that as we become one with one another, The world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me, Jesus says. We testify to the world of the love of God, of the reality of God by being one. 
because there's nothing that can break through racial or generational or political divisions and cause enemies to become one. And we've seen the way that God's church has broken through divisions. There's places in India where people of different castes who are meant to be enemies, who are meant to hate one another, as soon as they step into that church, they are brothers and sisters. Nothing can do that but a miracle of God. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. So, two questions to ponder in response to these amazing words. What might it mean to be one with Christ now? In your life, in Springwood, in our life together. There's a lot of things we could say in response to that question. But let me share a a couple of thoughts. First of all, oneness with Christ is a spiritual reality that comes from being gifted the Spirit of God. It's a gift to us. So if we trust in Jesus as the Son of God, we have been gifted the Holy Spirit and we are one with Christ and we're being forged even further into oneness with Christ. And so what that means is it's not dependent upon how we feel. You know, in, in any relationship, there are moments that we can point to where we feel the intensity and intimacy of oneness in quite profound ways. Uh, I think to the journey that me and my wife Emma have had over the years and can point to particular special moments where we've moved together as one and felt particularly close to one another. And it's same in our relationship with God. We can all point to moments in life where we felt a oneness with God or a closeness to God in profound kind of ways. But our oneness with God is not dependent on those experiences. Yet, we're invited to grow in intimacy with our God. And like any relationship... Oneness grows as we know each other more deeply. I went away on holidays with my family a couple of weeks ago and we spent a lot of time doing things together, playing board games, going for walks along the beach, eating together. It was a really precious time and as we invested time and energy in one another, we grew closer together. How and when are we investing time and energy into the most important relationship that we have? You know, I I used to get really irked when a minister would say something like that in a sermon because it made me feel guilty and it made me think, oh, got to spend more time. Like like it was a, a rule or there was a certain amount of time I needed to spend with God each day. This isn't meant to be a chore or a rule. It's an invitation to eternal life. It's an invitation to fellowship with God. 
Second question to ponder. What might it mean to be one with each other here in this church family? I think, first of all, it it doesn't mean agreeing on everything. It doesn't mean having no opinion. It doesn't mean you cease to be you, just like our oneness with Christ doesn't make us God. It means being like-minded in drawing near to God and desiring to be formed by him together. It also means, I think, casting aside those things which divide communities and family, the things that create division, are secondary to the one who unites us. In the New Testament, so many of the letters are underpinned by this division between Gentile and Jew. This racial and cultural divide working to tear people apart. But every generation and culture has forces wanting to divide people. What has the potential to divide us today? Is it the political tribes that we find ourselves aligned with? Is it, is it generational divides or different opinions on what worship should look like? Is it the fact that we are a group of four very different and unique church communities and as we spend time together navigating those relationships, does that have the potential to divide? We need to think through those things and remember that it's as we draw close to Christ and focus upon him that those divisions become less important. But oneness is not just about overcoming divisions. Oneness means moving together with the same purpose and direction with our shared life being directed at life with Jesus. It's God who binds us together. And so oneness is forged by talking about our God together, sharing stories of how God's at work in your life, of how you've seen him answer prayer. When are we telling stories of God's goodness displayed in our lives? How are we celebrating God together in our conversations over supper and during the week? I wonder how many of the things that divide us would just fade into insignificance if when those divisions arrive, we sat down, prayed together, and just talked about how good God is. There's lots lots of things to ponder. I'm sure you have other thoughts about those two questions, and I'd encourage you to keep chatting about that, to keep pondering and drawing near to God and to one another. But I wanted to share, as I close, one, an article that I was reading the other day that has this beautiful reflection of oneness and God's glory. And the author spoke of this moment in the book of Isaiah where the angels encounter God, they come before God and they all cry out, holy, holy, holy. And it's like they're almost left speechless with only one fitting word to repeat. And the author was saying that you get this sense that with each repetition of the word, they seem to mean it a little bit more than they did the last time. Like they keep catching a fresh glimpse of what holy means. 
As we continue to encounter the living God, we will catch fresh glimpses of his goodness and of his majesty, his glory. We'll never reach the end of God, even into eternity. We'll never drain the well of eternal life. We will be forever diving deeper into our oneness with Christ and in turn with each other. Can you imagine what the new creation is going to look like when we are truly one with God and with each other? Let me finish with this quote from that same author. He writes, In the end, union with Christ is fellowship with the one who knows us. And I think that is what makes it so limitlessly wonderful for us, both now and forevermore. Let's pray. Lord God, we're speaking of things here that we can't completely comprehend. Of truths and wonder that we get a glimpse of, but our little finite minds will continue to be blown away by your goodness and your majesty and your wonder and your love into eternity. And Lord, thank you for the adventure you have in store for us. That it's an adventure of learning and exploring and knowing you that will never end. Lord God, we pray that you might continue by your spirit to forge us as one with you and therefore one with each other. May you protect us from the things that divide and may you fill our hearts like David with longing for you, that we might be able to say your love is better than life. Amen.